for anyone that's been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that I'm trying really hard to nail the pseudo Pilsner. Now, not being a true to style Pilsner, I am still trying to get a beer that is a good representation of what a Pilsner should be. So today I invited Tom Acatelli to the show and he wrote the book on Pilsner and we're going to talk to him about it today on Homebrewing DIY. recipes and taking good notes are two of the key fundamentals of making great beer. This is one of the first things that you learn when becoming a new brewer. I started taking notes on a sheet from my extract kit and then quickly moved to brewing software. I've tried many different types of brewing software and then I found Brewfather. This is the one piece of software that you need for recipes and very detailed brew day notes, as well as fermentation notes. Brewfather also integrates with some of the topics that we discuss on this show, like the till hydrometer, the ice spindle, and ferment track. You need no other piece of software than Brewfather. One of the best parts of Brewfather is that you can try it for free. All you need to do is head to our website, homebrewingdiy.beer, and click on the Brewfather banner to sign up for free today. Once again, that's homebrewingdiy.beer, and sign up for Brewfather today. Keeping a clean brewery is the key to making great beer that doesn't get contaminated. Do you use a glass or plastic carboy for your fermentation? Did you know that getting your carboy clean can be tough, especially removing the crucin ring? Even with traditional carboy cleaning tools, it can take a lot of time and not get your carboy completely clean. Well, today there's a new tool that can easily clean your carboy and do it fast, and that tool is called a scrubber ducky. Scrubber duckies are a new magnetic carboy cleaner that are easy to use and get the cleaning results required in brewing. Drop a magnetic scrubber into your carboy and be able to scrub away all of the grime in that hard to clean cruisin'. They are no match for scrubber duckies and you can get yours today at scrubberduckies.com. Once again, head over to scrubberduckies.com. Have you ever wanted to make a podcast? Do you have a subject you want to discuss with listeners? Do you even know where to start? Well, if you want to make a podcast and you want to get started now, I could not recommend Anchor enough. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use right from your phone or computer. Creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. And you can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Hey, look, I shopped around for a place to post my podcast, and Anchor was the easiest, most streamlined experience you could ask for. So if you're looking for a place for your new podcast, Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Once again, 
Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome back to Homebrewing DIY, the podcast that takes on the do-it-yourself aspect of homebrewing. Gadgets, contraptions, and parts, this show covers it all. On this week's show, we're going to talk to Tom Acatelli about his new book, Pilsner. We're going to do a deep dive into the history of Pilsner, and we're going to talk about how he researched and learned about this great beer style. So stick around for that interview. But first, I'd like to thank all of our patrons over at Patreon. It's because of you that this show can come to you week after week. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewing DIY. I'd like to welcome our newest patron, Craig. Thank you very much for your support and really, really do appreciate your signing up for Patreon. Another way to support the show is to head on over to our website, homebrewingdiy.beer and use our sponsor banners. Do your shopping at Adventures in Homebrewing, buy Brewfather, or even get a brew bag from brewinabag.com. That support is going to help this show. Your prices stay the same when you use those links, but they support us because they know that we sent you. The last way to support us is to write us a review. Head on over to Apple Podcasts, or if you're using the Apple Podcast app, scroll to the bottom and leave us a review, or head on over to podchaser.com and leave us a review there. I read every single one of them, and we've made big changes to the show, like doing feedback at the end of the show based on the reviews from listeners like yourself. So if you have any feedback, you can head over to our website, homebrewingdiy.beer, and click on the contact tab, or you can shoot us an email to podcast at homebrewingdiy.beer. I read every single one of them, and I usually reply pretty quickly. So look forward to hearing from all of our listeners. Let's hop into this week's show, and let's talk to Tom Acatelli. And we're going to talk to him about the wonderful world of Pilsner. I'd like to welcome Tom Acatelli to Homebrewing DIY. Hi, Tom. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you very much for having me. Well, Tom is a author of a new book called Pilsner. And I have to say, Pilsner's probably, if we were to say it, a style of beer, or at least a style that people have tried to mimic, probably the most popular style of beer in the world. And Tom has made an attempt to, a very good attempt at, at, at writing a book about the history and the style. And I... And as anyone who listens to the show knows, I, I love the history of beer styles and talking about beer styles in general. So, Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your book. No problem. Thank you. So let, let's start a bit with what made you decide to want to write a book about Pilsner? Well, my, my first foray into book writing about beer was The Audacity of Hops, The History of America's Craft Beer Revolution. And that came out in 2013, and it was the first history of craft beer in the United States. And I started that book's timeline in the early 1960s in the San Francisco Bay Area with the rescue of the Anchor Brewing Company back then. And that's how we kind of, everything unspools from there as far as craft beer goes. And we, I'm sure your listeners know very well the 
ubiquity and influence of craft beer. And I thought, well, I updated the Audacity of Hops again about four years later in 2017. And then I thought, what about a, a prequel? And how would I do a prequel? Would I do a history of beer to the early 1960s? And that, that didn't seem, that seemed like an enormous undertaking and not something for a single volume. So I chose the most popular beer style, which to this day is Pilsner. And so much of craft beer, and what we understand as craft beer and microbrewing, is a reaction to that popularity. Um, people buy the 1960s, homebrewers in particular, in the United States were tired of Pilsners and Pilsner iterations and Pilsner bastardizations and all these kind of watery yellow beers. And they wanted to resurrect the uh, styles, some of which were almost obsolete. And that's where we get craft beer. So basically, yes, I decided to write Pilsner because I wanted a prequel to the audacity of hops. And we, when we were talking at the beginning of, you know, setting up this call, you, you were very clear. You were like, hey, I'm not much of a home brewer, but you have homebrewed before. And, yes. and why, why don't you tell me a bit about you know, what your experience like, what, what, what it was like when you did do some homebrewing? Well, I got really into craft beer with the audacity of hops. Like I, I was kind of a um, you know, gadfly when it came to beer. I, I really liked Budweiser for a long time. I, I, I'm old enough to have collected Bud points. I don't know if some of your listeners might be old enough too. Um, but then I got into, you know, I just wanted better tasting beer. I was living in New York city. I, I drank a lot of, um, you know, Sierra, uh, Brooklyn lager, uh, Sierra Nevada was very popular. Uh, Sam Adams, of course, some of the, you know, the bigger craft brands. And, but then I got the idea for audacity of hops and started doing the research there. And I realized the influence and the role that homebrewers had played and they, they really did. It was like a very much an underground movement. As I'm sure you know, and so I, I did a few forays into homebrewing uh, in our, our Brooklyn apartment, and by and large, they were disasters, but I really got into it, and I got into the, the homebrewing culture as well. Um, I had a couple really good batches, to be honest, and, and I was very proud of that, because back then, it, even in New York City, it was difficult to find the right supplies and to get the right you know, know-how and proportionality, especially if you don't have sort of a scientific... Uh, bent or background, but most of, most of my attempts at homebrewing were pretty bad. Uh, I made a lager once. It was the only time I tried to make a lager and, you know, homebrewing 101 is like they have to be fermented at a lower temperature. And I knew that. And I get to the end and I had to just clear out my fridge. And it was, you know, this frantic attempt to keep it cool and it, it didn't work. And I think the yeast died after a couple of days. So. <laughs> but anyway... Well, you know, any good homebrewer has lots of stories like that. Yeah. I think that that's part of the learning curve is you have to make you have to make mistakes and mm -hmm. you have to and you have to learn from those mistakes to make better beer. Well, but, it's interesting you say that color. I mean, there, there's some I mean, I I've, I interviewed a lot of figures in the early craft beer movement and they, and they said the same thing and they all have their stories about I mean, people like Ken Grossman here in Nevada, uh, Steve Hindi at Brooklyn Brewing. You know, they have their own stories about how they started as homebrewers and screwed up so much, but it taught them about the brewing process. And they were able to take that to, you know, pr turn professional basically on that, on that sort of trial and error knowledge. So. Well, and to me, that's kind of the cool thing about 
brewing beer in general when you think about the fact that it, it really is trial and error. And if you go back all the way back into history, which we're probably about to do, we're going to talk about how people discovered different t- tricks to making mm-hmm. different styles of beer, but that was done through trial and error. It wasn't, mm-hmm. there, there was no scientist sitting there going, Hey, this is going to be the best way to ferment this because no, it was done because somebody did something. It tasted good. They tried to repeat it and they continued to do it over mm-hmm. and over again until it was consistent. And so well, let's, let's dive back a bit because I, I'd love to hear about how, Pilsner started as a style? Sure. It's it sort of gets to what you were just saying. Essentially you have these these aristocrats or these town elders in a, in a in a city that's now in the Western Czech Republic and back then was part of the Austrian Empire and it's called Pilsen. And the burgers or the aristocrats who had the right to brew beer and to sell beer in Pilsen were starting to look over their shoulder at these Bavarian imports right over the border in what was then an independent Bavaria and now is part of Southern Germany. And these Bavarian beers were, you know, crisper and cleaner and better tasting and more in demand. So the burgers of Pilsen were losing business basically. So in a bid to sort of mimic these Bavarian beers in the late 1830s, very early 1840s, they hire a Bavarian brewmaster named Josef Grohl, they, who imports Bavarian techniques and Bavarian know-how, and in many cases, Bavarian ingredients. And he sets about trying to basically replicate the Bavarian lagers that are so popular in Pilsen. And it's not entirely clear what happened or how it happened, but due to the local ingredients, the water, Grohl's own quirks. He was apparently a very acerbic, kind of rude, mad genius type. The beer that he produced and that was first released publicly in November of 1842 is this golden colored, super crisp, super effervescent lager that was named after the city. So it become Pilsner, becomes Pilsner. And it's the color in particular is what shocks people and what sort of set it on its way to this sort of cultural and and business hegemony is because nobody had seen beer that light before there there were had it's 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 inaccurate you see this a lot that it was the first light colored beer or or you know golden hued beer that's not the case there were pale ales there were lighter colored lagers but nothing was quite as bright as pilsner and you know they Grohl hit it, and then he, he hit it again and again and again and was able to replicate it. And within a few years, it's very popular in the Austrian Empire. A few years after that, it's very popular in Europe. And the big change comes, of course, when there is a wave of um, German immigration to the United States in the 1850s. They take Pilsner to the U.S. Long story, very long and interesting story short, the German-American brewers export it to the rest of the world, and we're still living in that world, so... Yeah, and it it's one of those things that when we talk about beer history, obviously beer history goes thousands of years back. But yep. when we talk about the style of Pilsner, we're only talking the last couple hundred years, uh, maybe hundred and eh, probably about one hundred and seventy years. Uh, exactly. Yeah, and when we look at that style specifically, there are certain aspects 
of of the style that really stand out to me first of all is the 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 quality of the water of a pilsner it's very very soft it's light Mm -hmm. you there's almost no salts in it in any way and Mm -hmm. and that is a, a really difficult thing I'm in Denver, Colorado. I used to live in Salt Lake City, Utah. Salt Lake City was even worse. To try to mimic a really soft water profile when making a a like a Czech style pilsner or an Austrian style pilsner, right? Mm-hmm. And so, for me, what was it that that when they were trying to export it to the United States? Was it the water that they were first trying to mimic? Was it the light color they were first trying to mimic? What, what in those early iterations? What, what do you think they were trying to mimic essentially from a pilsner? I think. Well, I, I think the the color had to be what what it was in Europe. I mean that that was a main selling point because pilsner came along at a time too when there was mass production of glass for the first time. And it looked fantastic. This particular style looked fantastic in a glass. It looked very modern. It looked very clean and clear. And it also looked good in, in bottles. And you know, there's sort of mass bottling at this time too. But So I think the color number one was the thing that had to just – they the brewers had to nail it. The other thing was you know, the, the type of bar – at least in the United States – there was a dearth, you know, a, a sort of lack of supply of two-row barley, and so to make up for that in the U.S., they had they had access to six-row barley, but that could kind of get gummy. It was hard to, you know, it, it could get clumpy in, in the brewing process. So to break that down, they would use what we call now adjuncts like rice and corn, and so to to get that sort of smoother, clearer consistency. But I think it all came back to mimicking the color. It couldn't. It, that that was sort of the definitional thing from of Pilsner from the beginning, and it still is, and it's still a difficult thing to do at a home brewing level. And you know, a, a lot of um, smaller brewers, professional brewers, are sort of trepidatious about undertaking it because that I, I've I've heard um, I forget who said it. It's in the book, but you know. Among brewers, Pilsner is often described as naked beer because there's no room for any detritus or mistakes to kind of hide. You know, when I made ales and I made, like I said earlier, when I homebrewed ales and I made them terribly, uh, I could at least cover up some of it with a lot of hops, a lot of bitterness. (laughs) So you can't necessarily do that with a Pilsner. I think that the Pilsner is a style of beer that, like you said, it's naked. You 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 can't make any mistakes. Any flaws that you make are going to come out of mm-hmm. it immediately. And whenever anybody says to me, what do you think of American light lager? We'll use that as an example. Mm-hmm. I always say, hey, it is probably the least flavorful beer you're going to make, but it's probably one of the hardest beers to make out mm-hmm. there. It, as far as the process goes, you, you're we're talking temp, temperature control that is on a level that you could barely do it a home scale all the way through the entire process. The amount of ingredients in the entire process is completely repeatable and done over and over again at a massive scale. And when we look at it, that American light lager style, yes, it is probably still the most popular style of beer in the world and probably the most flavorless style of beer. (laughs) But on the other hand of it is it is 
I, I have never been able to make a good American light lager and I've made a few attempts and it is a very difficult beer to make. Mm-hmm. And I think once, once brewers, especially in the 19th century, were able to seize on it when they had the recipe down, they had the techniques down and they had the equipment down. It really was off to the races as far as scaling up because the guys who could nail it, it was, it was fast becoming the most popular beer style in the U S and in the rest of the world. If you could nail it, if you were, if you were an Anheuser-Busch, uh, a Paps, a Heineken, and later, you know, Miller, uh, Schlitz, Strohs, you, you, you were set. You know, what, one of the salient features of Pilsner's rise is how it didn't just rise. It didn't just become popular. It became po- because it was, you know, it looked good in a glass. It tasted great. It could be re- reproduced and shipped further and farther. It also succeeded and also rose because it just swept aside all these other styles. You know, as, as your listeners know, I mean, they're, they're, you know, there's hundreds, there's potentially dozens, some would say hundreds of beer styles out there. And they were all distinct and they were all competing for the same market share and, and share of throat in the late 19th century, early 20th. But they couldn't compete with this, the popularity of this particular style. And so you have IPA and Porter, et cetera, et cetera, start to disappear for decades. They're only brought back by homebrewers, basically. Yeah, and one of the crazy parts, that when you think about it, think of like the 1950s, 60s, and 70s in the United States. If you said, I want a beer, the only beer that people <laughs> thought about was the pale yellow lager, right? Yes. There was, there, was no, there was no other style of beer. And only in the late 80s and early 90s did you start to see that change, and like you said, with the the Boston Brewings of the world, the Sierra Nevadas of the world. Mm-hmm. Here in Colorado, Wine Coop Brewing was, was oh, the yeah. late 80s one that's now hopefully going to be our new Senator Hickenlooper because he opened that. And you, you kind of think about those styles and how they changed and went back and people started to be, because beer became a monolith, right? It became, mm-hmm. it was, this was this one style. Though, as I have progressed as a brewer, when we look at the classic examples of Pilsner and the European examples of Pilsners, they, they're a lot different than that American light lager. And if you were to compare the two, so take an American light lager mm-hmm. and we, we know that it has heavily adjunct in it, 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 it's it's got some hops, but it's not a lot, and it, it lacks a lot of flavor. That's that's that is in contrast to Pilsner from Europe, right? Yes, yes. And I would also say the Pilsners that are coming into vogue now, um, it's it's enjoying kind of a vogueish renaissance for a long time in homebrewing circles and craft beer circles. Pilsner was the style that you avoided, not necessarily not just because it was difficult to to replicate. But also it represented, you know, your uncle's beer. You didn't want to make a Budweiser. You didn't want to make a Miller Lite. But now, you know, they're coming around to it and, and making these sort of fav- flavorful and, and richer, crisper tasting Pilsners. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the Pilsners that would be available in, the U- in Europe even today, I, I don't know what it is, but they, they taste, you know, fuller than what you find in the U.S. I think that's also because the the American based companies, and they're not entirely American-based anymore, of course, but are brewing on such a scale and exporting on such a scale that only like really Heineken compares in Europe to, to what you know Anheuser-Busch is doing or, or Miller Coors or something like that. 
Yeah, and with Heineken, you get the green bottle, so then it still has that kind of. It's it's not and and for me, if if a Heineken is brewed and made here in the United States, it's going to have a different flavor than if it were brewed in Europe, sat Mm -hmm. on a boat for a while, got here in that green bottle. It's going to skunk up real nice. Really, yeah. (laughs) But they supposedly they want that to happen. I don't know if that's the case, but yeah, it, it it could be something they want to have. It could be something that they want to happen, but for me, it just tastes light struck, and to me, it's it's not a, a a flavor of beer that you would like. But then, the other piece about lager, or specifically the Pilsner style lager, is that that's now been exported globally, right? So, for mm-hmm. example, if you go to Japan and you think of like a, a Sapporo and sushi, it's even though it's it's a lot more rice in in the mix or probably the same amount as like an american rice mm-hmm. in the mix the idea is it's still trying to mimic that lager style right yes and the best selling beer in the world is snow out of china it's not and it's not exported anywhere outside of china it's still the best selling beer and it is definitely based on pilsner yeah i've never had a snow i've never mm-hmm. had a snow but i've seen it and it's i mean you know it's it, it's almost translucent it's very light colored. So if I were going to want to make, let, let's say I wanted to make a classic style of Pilsner and I'm a, I'm a brewer, what would be the characteristics that I'm really looking for? And I, I don't need you to give me a recipe or anything, but it, more of like, what would be the characteristics I would look for if I were going to make a classic, let's say a, a, an Austrian style or Bavarian style Pilsner? Oh, that's a fantastic question. I, I would say the water, soft water, Saz hops. The malt, I mean, you know, obviously a lighter malt. But interestingly enough, I don't think the original Pilsners, there, there wasn't like a Pilsner, Pilsen malt or something like that. They, they used what they had available. They were trying to mimic, you know, Dunkels from Bavaria. So they were, you know, initially going for lighter colored right off the bat. We don't know how that happened or, or, you know, that that was kind of, I don't want to say an accident of the brewing process early on, but it's as close to an accident as you can get without it being accidental. But yeah, so I would, you, you would want a hue light, you would want a hue crisp and you want, you would want a hue toward an effort, you know, sort of effervescent appearance, you know, very bubbly. You that's want a really give, good question. Yeah. You want to give it a little more, you want to give it a little bit more carbonation than you would in in like an ale. You want to get that thick, foamy white head, right? That 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 is some so to me is so indicative of the Pilsner style. At least those are the things I think of when I I think of a, a Pilsner that I would like to enjoy. That that's thinking of that classic style of Pilsner. I I like the richness of the taste. I don't know. How, I I can't even describe like sort of lemony, fuller. I, it's difficult for me to describe, but I actually like, you know, the Pilsner Urkel, which is still brewed on the site of the original Pilsen brewery. It's not the original brewery, but it's, it's on the same site in Pilsen. And you can, you, you know, after this pandemic is over, I would encourage your listeners to maybe make a, you know, a bucket list beer trip out there. It's a fantastic little town, a little city. I, I can't describe, yeah, I can't describe how to, the taste, but I, it's got like a lemony, you know, full it's a it's a thinner beer than than your typical ale say but it's the taste of of a well-done pilsen pilsner is is full i mean it's it's rich 
I, I think Pilsner Kell is a classic example of the pills of the Pilsner style. And by far, if you were to say, "Hey, go down and buy me one," I love Pilsner Kell even mm-hmm. to this day. Been a home brewer for a long time. I drank Pilsner Kell before I was a home brewer, and love the beer. And I also love the the fact that there are some American breweries that are trying to do those styles of of pilsners like for example here in colorado there's beer stat that does a mm-hmm. slow poured pills that all of us all of us that are in my beer group are always like hey did you bring the slow poured pills it's really good it's 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 an amazing beer right is that the place in is that in denver it is in denver it okay in denver. i know exactly what you're talking about i tried to visit there once it was very crowded <laughs> yeah it's a, it's, it's a very very busy busy yeah. brewery Everybody but the idea talking about it yeah, yeah and, and it, it is a great example of of a American iteration, right? Of a classic style. Let's talk a bit about how you researched for the book. I, that that's the part that is always fascinating to me is how did, did you travel? What kind of (coughs) stuff did you read? How how did you find out more about the style? I, I traveled and I knew quite a bit about, you know, brewing since the, since world war two, let's say. And, so uh, the brewing and brewing history and then the business of brewing. Uh, I had a lot of help from some of the larger breweries have, you know, great archives. Uh, it'd be, it'd be wonderful if they digitize them and organize them better, but they do have them and they have some wonderful people who can point you in the right direction. So that helped a great deal. The American Breweriana Association has digitized some 19th century magazines and journals about brewing. So that was a big help. There's a fantastic book by an author named Maureen Ogle called Ambitious Brew, which covers a lot of, you know, 18th century, 19th century, early 20th century brewing in the United States. And there were some older books that I, that I, you know, sort of dusted off and, and referenced. And then, yeah, I traveled my, my two favorite trips during the, the, the research were, well, three favorite I went to the Coors Brewery, brewery out where you live, in Golden, Colorado. It, it was funny because it was the last Saturday of the GABF, so I spent the morning walking around the Denver or the Colorado Convention Center in downtown Denver, and then I spent the afternoon at a, a mostly empty Coors Brewery on a Saturday and got to see sort of what's called, you know, it's called itself the largest brewery in the world, physical brewery. And uh, it just was something else to be in there. It's like, it's, it's ginormous. And then I also enjoyed visiting Pilsner, Pilsen and Pilsner Raquel. And I enjoyed, I went to the Spaten Brewery in Munich. And Spaten plays a massive role in the development of brewing and beer in general. And was sort of a evolutionary step along the way to Pilsen, what Spaten was producing. The Spaten Brewery, it's, it's a massive complex in Munich. And the Spaten part is basically empty, largely empty. It's not really producing much because they don't make much Spaten anymore. And so a lot of it's kind of a museum or it's just a dank, you know, dark cellars. The other part is Lowenbrow, which they produce a lot of. So... <laughs> I didn't see that part, but I saw Spot. And I, I just enjoyed, you know, the Munich beer culture in general, a lot of which I recognized coming from the United States because, as I soon realized, it was the Germans who influenced U.S. beer culture. So, 
Yeah, you just mentioned a Lowenbrow. That's a beer I have not had in a really Never long time. Oh, okay, oh, in a really <laughs> long time. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I've I've I had one. It was probably in the 1990s. It's been a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 speaking of Spotten, I, I think Spotten has influenced a lot. I recently did a show where I had a, a gentleman on, where we talked about Vienna Lager and specifically mm-hmm. when they derived the Vienna malt that ended up becoming the main malt in Vienna Lager. Mm -hmm. And specifically, a lot of the teachings that that local brewer had in Austria actually came from Spaten. He ended up sharing how he was brewing lagers because they started off with Vienna malts, brewing ales, and then the brewer of Spaten actually shared how to do lagers, and then he started doing lagers. And so it's funny how in that region which we talk about all these different countries in all reality they're probably about the size of a state here in the united states in mm-hmm. the west and but in the 17 and 1800s to travel between those countries was far far you know you didn't have cars and things like that right yeah but the idea is that they still shared a lot and brewing was done at an industrial scale then and so they they kind of stole from each other to kind of come up with these or, or not really stole, but shared with each other and, and made better beers because of it. And it was kind of a, a really, I would say a re, a, a very Renaissance time of, of beer in general, because, Absolutely. If, because before that it was if, in Germany specifically, you had, these are the four ingredients of beer and this is all we have. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you have in, in England, where they're making porters and, and, and stouts and those style of beers. And they were really bulking up in the amount of industrial capacity that they could export beer. I think Porter mm-hmm. was like the first real industrial beer. And it's just kind of cool how all of these things were happening around the same time. Right. A, a big part of my book Pilsner is uh, the big part of the start of it is Anton Dreyer and Gabriel Settlemeyer, who were up-and-coming brewers in what became Germany and what was then the Austrian Empire, they traveled around in the 1830s, trying, particularly in England, trying to soak up as much information as they could so they could bring it back to the continent, to these Germanic areas that had sort of limited knowledge and a limited scope, to, limited uh, sandbox to play in so to speak. You know, they had those four ingredients they had to adhere to by and large. And so you're right. A lot of it was about sharing information, sometimes stealing information. Dreyer and Settlemeyer traveled with a hollowed out walking stick, if you can believe it, and (laughs) would extract when they could, when they didn't think anyone was looking, they would actually extract beer to take back and sort of dissect and, and, and parse through the sample. But they got the knowledge and the know-how and then they turned around and developed and refined it even more. And then, you know, a few years later, you have people like Joseph Grohl taking that knowledge and creating Pilsner. And we go from there, basically. The, the sort of genesis of modern brewing is on, is on the European continent in, that, in the 1830s and 1840s, I think. And you can sort of, it just sort of goes from there. Up until that point for thousands of years, with only a few exceptions, beer hadn't changed much. I mean, it's hard to believe, and, but it really is the case. I mean, then it started to change a lot and very quickly. 
yeah, I think we're kind of now modern wise, we're in a, a new renaissance of beer mm-hmm. where it went from, hey, we're going to really refine it down to the most light, crisp beer we could possibly make that's an easy drinker that mm-hmm. is is beer for the masses. You could give it to anyone, and if you don't like beer, you're probably going to like a American light lager or that style of beer. It's easy mm-hmm. to drink. But then it, we're now in a place where we have more styles and new styles being made. New England IPA always comes to mind for me. It's <laughs> kind of been crazy to watch an entire style just appear and become a, a real thing, right? Uh-huh. Whether you like that beer or not, that is where it is, right? right. And the other part is to kind of see new things and new ingredients that aren't really so new, like kvikes and those mm-hmm. styles of yeast that are coming out that me and my friends have a some projects that we're doing where we're trying to make pseudo pilsners, essentially, oh, wow. with, with kvikes that were fermenting in the 80s. And, and they're like, oh, man, you still get them clean at 90. And, How's and those, it going? Great. We, we can get crystal clear golden straw-colored beer that is crisp and clean like you would from a lager, yet mm. fermented it around anywhere between 78 and 90 degrees. Mm. And okay. also done in about two days, three days. It's crazy. Wait, this is a lager fermented at what? It, it's not really a lager. We're calling them okay. pseudo-lagers. So okay, pseudo-lager. Okay. Yeah, we call them the pseudo-lager. <laughs> because in the end, there's still the the process of lagering, which is the... You, you make a lager, it gets done with fermentation. There's still that bulk aging piece where mm-hmm. you really clear out the beer and get this like crisp golden colored beer. The thing with the Kvikes is that we can turn the bulk fermentation around really quickly, but you still need a week or two for it to flock out. It has to happen or you're, mm-hmm. or you're going to have a hazy beer. But, right. but for the most part, you can get a really clear, crisp, clean beer with these Kvikes at really, really warm temperatures. And it's just, but, but the point I'm trying to make is, those are, it's a Norwegian farmhouse ale that's been used for uh, yeast that's been used for hundreds of years. And the second some modern brewers got their hands on it, it's become this huge thing. And it's kind of cool to watch all of these new styles and trends kind of come out. So, mm-hmm. it, it, and I just, I'm more curious when you look at history and you look at what's going on with beer now. And obviously, we don't know what the future is going to bring, but. I wonder what beer is going to look like in 20 years. That's Oh, uh, yeah, I have a theory. I mean, I'll share it. I, I think so Pilsner's, you know, the rise, it's sort of the rise and rise and rise of Pilsner and beer is based on it, inspired by it and trying to capture the market share. But I think that in the next 20 to 25 years, at least in the U.S., I think IPA will overtake it as the number one style. And what I mean by that is not necessarily the, the beers will not necessarily call themselves an IPA or the brands will not call themselves an IPA, but they will be the sort of hoppier, bitter ales. They will not be the lighter, crisper lagers. I really think that's going to be the case. Just, the, the trend in business right now in the brewing industry is this sort of consolidation and acquisition uh, wave. And I also think that, you know, you have one and a half generations now basically raised on craft and craft is dominated by the IPA. So I, I could definitely see this sort of shift nobody could have foreseen 20 years ago happening in the next 20, 25 years. It's, it's going to be interesting. It really is. And, I mean, you, you start to see it now. You have breweries that have six 
IPAs on tap and then mm-hmm. one other beer. <laughs> right. But I also see like if, if you want – see, the thing is like the larger companies, they, they think in terms of all their product. And so it's not necessarily beer. So the people who want the lighter colored, lighter tasting, even tasteless alcohol are going to hew towards seltzers. Yeah. Or sort of like mass-produced ciders. So that that segment's going there anyway. And that leaves – then there's then there's beer, and yep. the people who are going to stick with beer. They, if if they want that less alcohol and no taste, they're gonna, they've already left. So the people left behind are going to hew toward the bitterer stuff, and I think that's why where, where IPA seizes its moment, kind of. I I actually totally agree with you on that, and I see it right now. My wife. And I'll use my wife as an example. And if you've listened to this podcast at all, anyone, you know that I use my wife as an example all the time because she, she never drinks my beer. And not that it's a, it's a she doesn't like it. My wife, if I if I hand her a beer, she can appreciate it for what it is. But mm-hmm. it, at one point when we were young and in our twenties, yeah, she would drink PBR with the rest of them and shots of whiskey and all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And then as we got older, she moved more towards drinking wine. And now she's into seltzers. And mm-hmm. if, if I were to make a five-gallon batch of hard seltzer, I wouldn't drink it. My wife would crush it. But the <laughs> idea is that that is what... And not that I'm saying that it, it's that way with girls. The idea is that there are certain people that don't want to have that heavy beer taste, is what she always calls it, or, or overly hops. And they've all moved to seltzers. So many seltzers. It's crazy. Right. Right. No, no. I, I Yeah. And I, th- those, those consumers are going to leave the beer market, I think, in the next several years. They're just going to opt out. I mean, I, I'm, I'm old enough to remember Zima. And, Me too. You know, that, Me too. Right. I, I, you know, seltzer, the hard seltzer thing is happening so much faster and, and it's showing so much more durability. Uh, I just really think it's going to sort of lead all those consumers out who don't want beer, don't want the beer taste, and that's fine, and leave behind, you know, the the beer drinkers. And the beer drinkers are going to want uh, that heavier, more distinct taste. And I also think, too, there's a larger trend of millennials and Gen Z. They, they're not going to be drinking as much. The, the, the indications are they're going to be drinking less. So if they're going to be drinking at all, they're going to choose very distinctly what they want to have. So that'll break too in in IPA's favor. And also one of the things that they like is things that are craft made and not mass produced. And they want local, they want quality ingredients. Their, their entire taste from the younger generation is anything not mass produced is something that they want. Although, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, although some of these IPAs I think are going to be very much mass produced, but they're going to seem the labeling and the packaging is going to make it seem like they're, you know, ye old brewery down the street. But yeah. Yeah. And you're starting to see that with, with right. Anheuser-Busch or I, I guess InBev purchasing local breweries and, and not changing their brands. Right. right and exactly. not, and not closing them down and mm-hmm. o- only just pushing them out further into the, into the ether and pushing those brands. It, it's kind of funny is here in Colorado, just this year, we changed the beer market. I guess, yeah, it did happen at the beginning of 2020 where they were, you used to only be able to sell beer in a liquor store here in Colorado. And they changed it to where you could go to a grocery store. So I can now walk into, you know, 
King Supers or whatever Kroger, and they now have an actual beer aisle that's not just, you know, Keystone Light. That's what they had before. It was all 3-2. And one thing that I noticed is that the second that happened, all of there there were a few key local brands that were able to make those shelves. That like, for example, some of the I would say the mid-sized breweries that had good distribution themselves and had partnered with like local distributors already got that shelf space as well. But what I also saw was that the majority of that shelf space got taken up by the InBev brands and right. the and the Miller Coors brands that they had purchased because they were able to make those deals with band, brands like Kroger. Kroger. And mm-hmm. so it, it's really funny to see how there's still a really large business when it comes to beer. And when we talk about beer and homebrewing and craft beer, people don't like to talk about the business, even though the business is so important. Mm-hmm. Especially now, I think there's a lot of smaller brewers. I mean, I don't think, I mean, there are a lot of smaller brewers sort of on the cusp of going out of business. I mean, the, the pandemic has just taken such a toll. Oh, so um, it, the, this is one of those things where <laughs> I, the local brewery down the street, this is the time, and I'm going to say, I've said this a few times on the show. This is the time when you need to go down to your local brewery and get a growler. Mm-hmm. Go go buy some cans of beer from them. Even if you don't feel, I'm not going to say if you don't feel safe, don't go there. But I am going to say that if you if you feel safe getting something to go, go get something to go. Bring it home and and have a beer because if you like that, the big guys are going to survive. They have plenty of money. Right. They, they'll 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 the, if you're owned by InBev today, trust me, they have billions of dollars to ride through a couple of years of a downturn. The, or even the, some some of the larger crafts are going to, you know. Yeah, yeah, they have they have a big enough base, or they can they can leverage some technologies like being able to do ordering online and things yes. like that, right? They did change the laws for the better here in Colorado. We can mm-hmm. now do delivery of beer, which we couldn't do before, and some some other things like that have have definitely the the pandemic has opened up some of that market. But for me, it's it's that small brewery, and and I, I always think of in my mind. There's one where my home group brew club met called Someplace Else Brewery. And this is a place that is in a old industrial, like kind of kind of parking. It's like a it's like an old warehouse in an industrial mm-hmm. part of town. There there would be no reason for you to go there other than to go to the brewery. And, you know, they they only sell beer out of their own tap room. They're not distributed anywhere. And those are the guys that are really struggling right now. And those are the beers that you should be, you know, if you, if you're into local and that's what you want to do, those are the beers you should be buying today. Right. Exactly. I was going to say uh Boston beer company, you know, the maker of Sam Adams and dogfish head, yeah. the uh, stock for the first time ever hit a thousand dollars yesterday. Uh, this is early, you know, late October and it did it on the, on the back of truly hard seltzer, their the truly hard seltzer brand. Yeah. Funnily enough, not not every brewery, not every craft brewer can pivot to hard seltzer. You know? Boston beer is crushing it with truly. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, if, let's talk about if I wanted to learn more about your book, where can I find it? it, it do I go to Amazon or? It's where, all where over. I, um, I you know I always encourage people to seek out their independent bookstore online or in person if they can. It's all over the U.S. and Canada, wherever wherever fine books are sold. Excellent. And do you have a website or anything if I wanted to do a little I, bit deeper dive? Well, I have a I have Twitter feed, Tom, just twitter.com backslash Tom Acatelli, A-C-I, 
T-E-L-L-I, um, and the book is Pilsner, and the first beer book was The Audacity of Hops. Great, and you were on a second edition of that. And yes. You, and I think you said that you added 70 new pages because so much changed from 2013 to 2017, right? At least, yeah, a lot has changed, and I'm hoping to update it again at the start uh, later on this decade, So, because so much has changed since 2017. It's incredible. It really is. Well, I want to thank you for coming on Homebrewing DIY and... Hey, if you ever write another beer book, we'd love to have you back on the show. It's This is a passion for me. I read a lot of beer books, and I'm very, very excited to read yours. Okay. Thank you, Coulter. I appreciate it. I'd like to thank Tom for taking the time to come on this week's show. As always, when we interview beer authors, I feel like I learn so much when it comes to the history and styles and what's going on in the beer industry. It really is a passion for me. And, you know, hey, I, I'm sorry. I like to read books about beer. Yeah, this is just kind of how it is. But if you would like to... Leave us feedback. You can always email us at podcast at homebrewingdiy.beer. Also, you should follow us on social media. Head over to homebrewingdiy, all one word. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And I'm trying some TikTok. I am on TikTok. It's also homebrewingdiy, all one word. I'm not the best at that. We'll, We'll keep trying. But, you know, give me a follow on TikTok if you're listening to this podcast try it out. Well, that's it for this week. And we'll talk to you next week on homebrewing DIY.